Today is part two of a sermon that I didn't intend to have two parts, but that's just how it worked out. So I'm going to do a quick review, uh, you know, kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of what I spoke on last week, in case you were, weren't here. I think the outlines that you have today in your bulletin, uh, the first few blanks are filled in for you, so I'll just kind of breeze through that and to the point where uh, we need to pick up this morning. This is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Um, I think this is kind of an in-brief summary of how we're to live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And um, it begins by telling us that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, you remember last week I said to the Jews that was kind of a brand new concept because sacrifices in their minds were things that were killed. You know, you brought your lamb or your goat or your cow or whatever and it was slain and the blood then, their shedding of blood is what covered your sins. And so... There was no such thing as a living sacrifice in their minds. And so this whole idea that Paul brings forward of a living sacrifice was, wow, that's a new concept. And I'm kind of glad that's what God has called us to. To be living sacrifices. Yes? I like that idea. But here's something we need to understand about what it means to be a living sacrifice. Once a sacrifice was placed on the altar, it was hands off. You had no control over that sacrifice any longer. So, if we're to be living sacrifices, and remember I said, someone has said the problem with the living sacrifice is it tends to crawl off the altar. We can't crawl off the altar. If we offer ourselves as living sacrifices and we take our hands off and say, Lord God, my life is now under your control. And when we do that, it says that is our spiritual act of worship. We are worshiping God when we offer ourselves in that way. You know, I think sometimes we, you know, and, and I try to emphasize this, we, when we give of our offerings, that's, tithes and offerings, that's worship. When we sing praises, that's worship. When we fellowship together, that's worship. When we pray, that's worship. And folks, when we offer ourselves to God, that is worship. It pleases Him. It brings glory to His name. And, and Paul is then in these first verses of, of chapter 12 of Romans. He's, what he's saying is, because later on he's going to talk about what it means to serve God. And he talks about in these first verses a preparatory process. Here's what you need to do to prepare yourself to use the, the gifts that God has given you in His service. And we talked last week about some things we need to offer to God, to give to Him. Um, first of all, we offer our bodies. God used my body. And if, we, if, God, if we're going to offer our bodies to God... They need to be acceptable offerings. Do you remember what the, the standard for offerings was in the Old Testament? Unblemished. What? Pure. Perfect. You could not bring uh, an animal from the flock 
that was sick or had a broken leg or was limping around or was malnourished. No. You, what you did was you looked for the very best, the perfect one, the healthiest one. That's what you brought to God. And that's what He wants us to bring to Him. Now, I know we can say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm not. But that's what the blood of Jesus does for us, isn't it? And so when we have Christ in our life and He's done His work in us, we can offer ourselves as unblemished sacrifices for His honor and for His glory. Our bodies, we offer our bodies to Him. We also offer our minds to Him. It says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to see the world the way God sees the world. It's a, it's, it's a mind thing. You know, when Satan works on our lives, this is where he starts. He wants to mess your, with your thinking. He wants to change your thinking. He wants you to think the way that the world thinks. Paul refers to that as the vain philosophy of this world. And we see it happening all the time. And we see the world trying to condition us into the way of their thinking, don't we? We're bombarded with messages that say, this is what you should believe. This is how you should live. This is what you should approve of. Amen? Do we see it? Do we hear it? All the time. All the time. So, Paul says, God wants your mind. Don't be conformed to the way the world sees things, believes things, does things. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you see things the way God sees them. You do things the way God does them. You believe what God tells you to believe. And we are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. He speaks to us through this book. Most consistently, here's how God will speak to your life as you read the Scripture. And he says, this is truth. Walk ye in it. And then he said, I want your will. I want your will. Have you ever thought what a risky thing it was for God to give us a will? Man, can you believe it? Can you believe it? Well, I would have just created a bunch of little robots who would love me. Makes sense to me. But see, God didn't want people who are robots to love Him. He wanted people to love Him because they choose to love Him. Not because they're made to love Him and have no choice in the matter. And He gave us a will. And that will is what we enters into the picture when we're talking about right and wrong. Which do we choose? That will is what enters into the picture when God speaks to our hearts and we have the opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I will, or no, I don't think I'll go there. And God wants our wills to be submitted to Him. So when He speaks to our hearts, we say yes. When He says that's wrong, we say, you know what, I won't go there. When He says, this is what you should do, you say, yes, Lord, that's what I'll do. So those are things that God wants us to offer to Him in preparation for the service that we're to offer with the gifts that He's given us in our lives. It's, 
We offer those things to God. And then, then Paul goes on, uh, beginning in verse 3 of this chapter, for, the grace, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. See, we have to have an honest estimate of ourselves. An honest estimate of ourselves. Um, See who you are. Paul warns those he is writing to not to think of themselves as somehow above someone else. And you know, when we get into this area of spiritual gifts, it's easy to think that way. It's easy to look at the pastor up front. Wow, what a gifted... You're right. And so we tend to elevate, don't we? We elevate. Well, if you've got the gift of pastor or teacher or preacher or worship leader or whatever it is, well, obviously, you're more important than I am. Don't we do that? And some people who have those gifts kind of tend to think that. I'm pretty special. I don't know about you guys. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay? And we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and we forget, we forget that this gift that we have, it's not because of anything we've done, it's because that's what God gave us. And He expects us to be good stewards of it. And being a good steward of the gift He gave us doesn't mean I think that I'm better than you because I have that gift. The New Living Translation says this in that verse that I just read to you. Be honest in your estimate of yourself. The issue of self-importance might have been a problem in the Roman church that Paul was writing to because they were situated at what was considered the center of the civilized universe at that point. I'm from Rome. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm a Roman. I'm special. Their attitude might have been like the man who was driving down the uh, express rate during rush hour traffic when he received a call from his wife on his cell phone. She said, honey, you need to be careful driving home because I just heard on the news that there's an idiot driving in the wrong direction on the same road as you. To which the husband responded, it's not just one, there are hundreds of them. (laughs) I'm right. They're wrong. Uh-oh. Here's something, though. Here's a caution. It's, I think we need to understand this, too. And I, I just made reference to it. Not only is, it, is that potential issue of thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, but there's also the temptation to think, I'm not important. God, my gift, do I even have a gift? My gift's not important. There's nothing I can do. I couldn't possibly contribute in any meaningful way. Not true. Not true. And I've just said, you know, we kind of tend to elevate certain gifts above others, but listen, that's not how God sees it. 
And all the gifts are important in the function of the body of Christ. So we have to appreciate the differences that we experience in the body. Listen, we cannot do it alone. You know that the illustration that Paul gives of the body and, and you know, the, the different parts of the body, and one part can't say to the other part, I don't need you, right? Listen, I, I need all my parts. That's kind of how I feel about them. And if we are the body of Christ and we represent all the parts, what part can't we do or can we do without? Is there any part we can just say, well, we don't need you? Not according to what the Scripture says. Listen, we all bring something to the table that's important in the function of the church as the body of Christ. You know, Paul says, what if the body, the whole body were an eye? Ooh. Have you ever... So we could roll down the aisle to the front every Sunday morning. You could all look at the eye that was up. No. It's just, when you really think about it very long, it's facetious to even think that way, isn't it? I mean, the eye's important. So is the toe. Ask Keith. So is the toe and the ear and the nose. Yeah. We need to appreciate the differences. We can't do it alone. If God's purposes are to be accomplished through the church, then everyone must do their part. No one can do everything, but, but everyone can do something. I love the behind-the-scenes folks. I do. I'm glad that it's not the pastor's job to come and open the church on Sunday morning. There's somebody with a servant heart who comes and does that and turns on the lights and makes sure that the heat's at the right, you know, well, most of that's preset, but still. And, and the folks who put up the table and put the snacks out on it and make the coffee and, and you know, print the bulletins during the week and... Pretty important stuff. And stuff that we don't think about a lot of times until it doesn't happen. Who's supposed to do that? (laughs) Right? Oh, it's just a toe. Don't worry about it. We can do without them. Rick Warren said, well, Life has developed an acrostic that, that illustrates the differences that exist between the members of Christ's body. See, God designed each one of us as uniquely different from everyone else. You, uh, there is no one out there exactly like you. Now, there might be somebody that looks a lot like you, But when it comes to the mix that we're going to talk about here in a moment, there's no one exactly like you. I used to do this. I haven't married someone in a long time, and I guess there's a good reason. (laughs) Not too many people getting married in our church right now, but one of the things I used to tell them is, God brought you together. You are unique as a couple like no one else on the planet. And He can use you in ways 
he can, like he can use no one else on the planet as a team. And that really applies to each of us individually. So Rick Warren has come up with this thing, and here's where we're going to expand a little bit on the gifts idea. It's not just about gifts, although those are critical to the picture. So we're going to start there. Spiritual gifts, they're God-empowered abilities for serving Him, given only to believers. Spiritual gifts are God-empowered abilities for serving Him, given only to believers. By the way, when you accepted Jesus as Savior, you got a gift or gifts. Alright? So nobody has none. And we're gonna, we're, I'm gonna focus more on the, the, the aspect of spiritual gifts in the next week or two. The second thing, the second part of the acrostic is H for heart. It's what you love to do and care most about. We might call this your passion. What do you have a passion for? God can use those passions. Or we can run with them ourselves and make no difference in the kingdom. Alright? Heart. What you love to do and care most about. It's your passion. Abilities. The natural talents you were born with. Many of us have innate aptitude for certain things. I have a brother-in-law who is gifted in mechanical things. He just has an aptitude. He invented this incredible lawnmower, and we own one of them now. And there's nothing else like them out there. They're the best thing going. And I'll tell Dean I advertise for him in church today. But my brother-in-law just, God has given this, and it's interesting for Dean, my brother-in-law, that, you know, he's, he's wrestling with a problem, and, and he needs to fix it. And God will often reveal that, those things to him at nighttime as he sleeps. And he gets up the next morning, and he writes it down, and he goes and fixes the problem. He just has an aptitude for that. And some of us kind of have a natural, innate aptitude for music. And there's just a whole list of things. We're kind of born with these innate abilities. Now, we have to develop those things. There's no doubt about it. About it. We practice and we work on them. But a lot of us are born with an aptitude, innate abilities that God has given us. And He can use those in the service of the kingdom. The next thing is personality. P is for personality. It affects how and where you use your gifts. And how many of you remember Gary Smalley? Okay, he used to talk about the, he, he he talked about personalities this way. He used animals. There's the lion, the beaver, the golden retriever, and the otter. My wife is an otter. Otters love to have fun. Where's the party? I'll be there. Don't ask me to organize it, but I will come. <laughs> That's an otter. They're kind of outgoing. You know, they'll talk to anybody. And the uh, golden retriever, like me, 
stands back and says, that is a total stranger. Why are you talking to them? I'm like, that's the otter. And there's the lion. Think about the lion. That's what we would call the type A personality, the in charge. Um, I know you've got some good ideas, but hey, frankly, mine are better. That's kind of the way lions think. You know, I should lead. All right? Now, you know, these are broad generalizations, and I know they're varying degrees. Then there's the beaver, the perfectionist, the, the worker bee. All right? And that's, I got a little bit of the beaver in me, kind of that perfectionist tendency. And then the golden retriever. <laughs> Kind of the laid back, I just take life as it comes. You know, there's some, and then there kind of can be friendly and outgoing, but not a lot bothers them. And, you know, that disgusts some of the rest of us because they should be bothered by some things, but they aren't. <laughs> you know, nothing too urgent in a golden retriever's life. Personality. And then experience. Listen, you've had, you've had, we've all had some experiences that God can use in our lives to prepare us and use us in service. You know, one of the things we've been praying for as a church is that God would bring us some young, and I'm praying middle-aged couples, who are, are deeply rooted spiritually, that have gifts and talents and abilities, and experience. Isn't it nice when God just brings someone to your church who's already been involved in teaching Sunday school or knows how to be an usher or a greeter at the door or the list can go on and on. Experience. And so God puts us all those things together in a package, spiritual gifts and the other things, heart and abilities and our, our passions and and our experience and our personality, he puts them all together in this neat little package that he can use for his honor and glory through service to the kingdom and very often through the church. And then the next thing that, that Paul brings attention to, we need to acknowledge our dependency on God. You know, we're all uniquely designed and equipped by God. In other words, we all have our own shape, don't we? A little different, looks a little different for each one of us. We all have our own shape, but we were not intended to operate independently. You know, I'm strong in areas where God has gifted me. I am weak in other areas. Consequently, I must minister to others out of my strength and am dependent on others to minister in areas where I am weak. And that's why he's brought us all together. Because there's a lot of you out there that can do things I cannot do. And so we have to think corporately. We're in this thing together. It's this mix. It's the body. No one of us is an island. We're all members of the same body and there's a sense in which we must work together in concert. We must see ourselves as full, fully functioning members of the body of Christ with certain gifts that are necessary. 
necessary to the overall ministry of the church. Um, here's another aspect of interdependency that we need to think about for just a moment. Experts tell us that 85% of the success of people in the workplace is directly related to their interpersonal relationships. So, we bring this shape to the church. But, there's this... Shape doesn't make a lot of difference, doesn't have much impact if there is not a love and a unity with one another in the body of Christ that makes it all work. Do you see what I'm saying? Listen, if we're, if somehow we're, we're kind of divided into factions or thinking, well, that my gift is more important than your gift or, or anything like that, if there's not that vital unity in the church, we can be as talented as anybody out there, but it's not going to work. This interdependency is not just about the different gifts that come together. It's about loving one another. It's about, that's how they'll know you're my disciples, is because you love and care for each other. It's about unity in the body of Christ. Listen, folks, we cannot move forward if we don't move forward together. Right? If you can't get along with others in the body, it just won't work. Did you know that you belong to the person in front of you or behind you or sitting next to you? Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse, you're probably thinking, well, I knew that. (laughs) But listen, we all belong to each other in the body of Christ. We're all in the same orchestra playing different instruments. And don't think you're overly important because you have a solo once in a while. And don't quit playing because your instrument is never featured. Okay? I remember in grade school when we used to do music and it was okay to have things that said mention God or church. We used to sing Little Brown Church in the Wildwood. Remember that song? In the Wildwood, place in the dale. Okay, and then you got to the oh, oh, come, 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 and that's what the guys did in class. The girls kept singing the melody part, and the guys said, oh, come, 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 come. Oh, man. Because I didn't realize what it would sound like, you know. It sounds nice when you put it all together. It's like the orchestra. We went to a Yanni concert in... Portland one time and everybody in the place got a solo except the trombone and I was offended because that was the instrument I used to play. Come on. There's only one solo that should have been the trombone. That's what I thought. But but you know what? I don't think that guy cared because he was contributing to the overall effort. He knew he had a place. I'm sure he had solos at some times in some concerts. He just didn't have one that night. So... Don't think you're overly important because you have a solo. And don't quit because your instrument is never featured. We need each other because we belong to each other. Just as each of us has, has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we're, we who are many 
um, are one form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. It's amazing. I've memorized this passage of Scripture, but when I have to say it before you, I can never do it. <laughs> but I want to share with you what the New Living Translation says in those two verses. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, all right? So we're looking at that in the context of the church. Each part has a special function. So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. And guess what? We need to act like it, don't we? We need to act like it. We need to act like every part is important. Think about, um, I know the Broncos are playing later today. Think about the offensive lineman in football. That does not look like a fun job to me. And usually when they get attention, it's because the defensive lineman got past him and, you know, knocked out the quarterback or something. That's when they call their name. They don't get the notoriety of quarterbacks, running backs, or wide receivers, but they are essential to the success of players who throw the ball, catch the ball, and carry the ball. I used to run cross-country. Quiz time. What's a perfect score in cross-country? Anybody know? Huh? Well, no, perfect score for a team. That's right. First place is right. Perfect score in cross-country is 15. The lowest score wins. You take your place, your finishing place, and you add those together. So you've got five counting members of the team, and then you run seven. In case there's a tie, you go to the sixth or seventh man to determine how to break the tie. All right? So a perfect score is 15. First place, second place, third place, fourth place, fifth place. 15 adds up to 50. That's a perfect score. If you have the top five runners, <laughs> nobody would beat you. And sometimes the sixth or seventh guy thinks, well, pfft, what does it matter? Even sometimes, it's, sometimes the attitude in Monty is if I don't finish first, who cares? But listen, if you're part of that scoring process, where you finish is important. It's kind of like that offensive lineman. <laughs> All right? We all are important in the body of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say that complete engagement is important. We have to have a complete engagement in service. And he, and he lists here some different gifts and he says, if you have the gift, use it. If you're a teacher, teach. If you're an encourager, encourage. If you have mercy, show it cheerfully. Oh, I'll have mercy on you. No, use the gift God has given you. And listen, the list that Paul, he's just skimming the surface in, in Romans chapter 12. It's, it's a partial lift. There, list. there are many others mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, and Ephesians 4. And again, we'll talk more about these some of these specific gifts anyway in, in coming messages. Suffice it to say this morning that a spiritual gift, again, is an ability given by the Holy Spirit to express our faith for the building of the kingdom through the body of Christ. It, 
to build the kingdom. It's something God has done in us to build the kingdom so we can build the kingdom. And Paul makes two points here. Number one, God has given gifts to each of us. And I mentioned this already. There is no one who is in Christ who is giftless. Oh, God forgot. Listen, he didn't give you this. There's nothing in here. He didn't do that. Okay, when he, when he gave you the package, and he wanted you to open it, by the way. Okay? Listen, a spiritual gift doesn't mean a thing if I say, well, that's nice. Listen, I'm just going to set it aside and, you know, someday when I feel like it, I'll go ahead and open that thing up. Nope. It's like Christmas morning. When you get the gift, tear it open and use it. One, we used to live close to Julie's family about an hour away. And a lot of times we would gather at the farmhouse for Christmas. And, you know, we'd, we might even stay overnight there. And we quit doing that. We would have our own Christmas at our house and then go to the farmhouse. Because it bothered our daughters that, you know, when all the cousins are there, they're not only tearing their stuff up, and they're, they got their hands all over yours, too. And our girls are like, we don't want to get a chance to enjoy it. There's excitement and gifts, and we should be excited about each other's gifts. Now, I don't want to take yours from you. I don't want to mess it up or break it. But we should be excited about the gifts God has given us. No one is giftless. No one. Why would we think ever that we're giftless? Why would we think that? I mean, God is given us instruction in the Scripture that we all get them. Listen, when we think we're giftless, it's not God that's telling us that. It's someone who would just assume we sat on the sidelines and did nothing. See, this, the, the second point Paul makes here is these gifts are to be used. If you're teacher, teach. If you serve, serve. They're not to be shelved and admired. They're not to be hidden and unused. God wants us to use the gifts that He's given us. Charles Swindoll said this, Too many Christians are not serving. When you ask them to do something, they say, Well, uh, sorry, but that's not my spiritual gift. Of course, they probably don't know what their spiritual gift is, but they know it's not that. Trouble is, they seem to think they have no spiritual gift because they say that about everything. Brethren, I tell you the truth in Christ that there are no such gifts as pew-warming, sermon-listening, or music-listening, or I might add, spectator. Those aren't spiritual gifts. All of the spiritual gifts are proactive. You will be doing something. If you tell me that you are sold out to the Lord and not doing anything, I will not try to be rude and call you a liar, but I will have to ask you to explain your definition of consecration to me. God has given all Christians one or more gifts and He expects us to use them. So we're going to put this one back on the table. 
And when I'm done today, I'll pick the one up off the floor. That doesn't mean it's less important, by the way. God has given us all gifts, and he expects us to use them. Now, remember, to use them effectively, there's a preparation process we have to go through. It's a process of surrender. Body, mind, will. And when we've surrendered those things, and we're aware of a gift God's given us, he can use us to do amazing things. Can't he? Say amen. 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 Well, if we could have those who will be uh, serving communion this morning prepare and come at this time, we're going to join together in remembering what Jesus has done for us, not only in the giving of gifts, but in his sacrificial death on the cross. And as, as, as we talked this morning um, about the body of Christ and the importance of each and go ahead and begin, gentlemen, if you would. The importance we all have, that none of us is giftless, that we need to love one another and be unified in the body of Christ. I want to share this with you this morning. I've entitled it a tie that binds. First of all, just a reminder in the Church of the Nazarene, you need not be a member to partake of communion. And please hold the elements and we will partake together. In Acts chapter 2, it says this, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It is around the table that relationships are formed and nurtured. That's, uh, by the way, this is just an aside, I think that's one of the problems we have in our country today. They say families tend not to sit around the table and eat together like we once did. And, and, and that's been, I think, a contributor to the breakdown of the family. So it is around the table that relationships are formed and nurtured. By the way, I love that ad now. Have you seen it? They're all sitting around the table. And mom comes in and she has this thing on her phone that turns everybody else's off. And she sits down and says, we're going to talk. So when we come to the communion table, we need to recognize the relationship with God and what it provided, and we remember the relationships around the table with each other, that it encourages even from the early days of the church, as we gather around the, the, the table of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who was an enemy of the Nazis because he refused to go, to go along with their idea of a church that practiced anti-Semitism. In fact, he became a hunted man who upheld authentic Christian principles. As part of the German underground, he was not safe to worship openly. During such dark times, Bonhoeffer came to know that there was no other community and fellowship like that experienced within the body of Christ. Well, I hope we feel that way. He said... Baptism incorporates us into the unity of the body of Christ and the Lord's Supper fosters and sustains our fellowship and communion in that body. During the Nazi reign, Bonhoeffer was cut off from other believers and it took a toll on him. Don Lesur says, Bonhoeffer's painful discovery is instructive for us. 
cut off from the nurturing fellowship of other Christians, he felt a deeper hunger for the fellowship that was no longer available to him. Like a hungry man who knows the taste of bread, though he can no longer reach and break from the loaf, he knew the power of fellowship when it was painfully absent. From this experience, Bonhoeffer wrote, From this experience, Bonhoeffer wrote, God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man or woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying their truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Bill Hybels puts it this way. I've got it. The Bible says true fellowship, our relationship around the table, has the power to revolutionize lives. Masks come off. Conversations get deep. Hearts get vulnerable. Lives are shared. Accountability is invited. Tenderness flows. People really do become like brothers and sisters. We not only come to the table being thankful for our personal relationship with Christ, but for the relationships we have in the body of Christ through which our relationship with Christ is lived out. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, and this is the, um, a different, not the NIV, it's the common English version. It says, but if we live in the light as God does, we share in life with each other. And the blood of his son Jesus washes away all our sin. Folks, that's what we have in common, isn't it? 